I'd like to take a walk in the woods. Come with me, do you think you could? We'll find a tree that we can climb. We'll have fun all afternoon. Welcome to Nurture in Nature Radio, your weekly nature playlist for kids and families. Join us each week where we'll show you how getting outdoors with your family can help your kids be happier, healthier and smarter. And you'll open the door to a whole lot of fun too. So come on, lace up your boots and let's go and play outside. Here's your host, Tanya Maloney. Hello everyone and welcome to Nurture in Nature Radio. I'm your host Tanya Maloney and this is episode number 11 of the show. In today's episode I speak with a great lady by the name of Gillian McAuliffe. Now Gillian, I'm not going to go into too much detail here, I'll leave that for the interview part. But Jill, it was the founding principal at a fantastic school called Bold Park Community School. And it's in Perth in Western Australia. I've talked about it a little in my interview with Maggie Dent, Tim Gill. In my interview with him, we've talked about it as well. So it just goes to show you that when great people are talking about a great school with a great leader, um, it's really worth hearing about. So I know you'll enjoy that interview with Jill. It's a pretty long one, but what Jill shares is so important. And if you're a parent or an educator or just someone who is passionate about caring for kids, then she's got some great ideas and strategies and philosophies to share with you on that. So we'll get into that in just a moment. But before we do, I really just want to say a big shout out and a big thank you to those of you who listen to the podcast. Now, you've probably guessed that I'm pretty passionate about the topic of connecting kids and families and people of all ages with nature. Hopefully that comes through in the show. But what I do want to say is that it's so great to hear from people who are listening and you know I'm sitting here at my kitchen table wondering if anyone is out there listening I'm talking to my computer and the mic in front of me and I love to hear what people think one of the best ways you can let me know if you're out there and you're listening and what you think of the podcast and if you've got some great suggestions for the show moving forward you can reach out to me via email tanya at nurtureinnature.com.au that's tanya with an i t-a-n-i-a or what i'd really love and appreciate from you is if you could take just a few moments to provide a review and a rating on itunes or on any other platform you're listening on if that's an option Um, because it really is it's a great motivator for me it's a really good to hear what people think and as i said before if you've got suggestions for the show um, please reach out to me because i'd really love to hear them moving forward so without further ado let's get into my interview with jill i hope you enjoy it and i'll see you on the other side Hi everyone, Tanya Maloney here and today I'm very happy to tell you that we have a great lady here, Gillian McAuliffe. Gillian is the founder of the Bold Park Community School here in Perth, Western Australia Uh, and it was established in 1999 and inspired by best practice from international research in Reggio Emilia, uh, nature-based and place-based learning. Gillian is a passionate uh, and visionary leader and her school enjoys an exceptional reputation as a school for all ages from 18 months to 18 years 
which actively encourages educators on a local, national and international scale to reflect on their own teaching practices. Um, also since 2007, Gillian has been one of the key leaders for the Nature Action Collaborative for Children uh, in their World Forum on Early Childhood Education. Uh, and she's an advocate and I imagine a willing participant uh, although she doesn't have grandchildren yet, but they're coming apparently uh, to join her in this uh, and a, um, in a wonderful initiative called International Mud Day. So on that note, I really want to welcome you, Gillian, and thanks for being with us. Pleasure. Uh, and I'd love you to tell you, how did you become such this, you know, this wonderful advocate and, you know, a sought-after resource really in connecting kids with education and getting families and children and teachers excited about learning? Um, I think I think that um, is something which uh, sort of I grew up with. My dad was an educator and a very passionate educator um, with a different view on things. But really what, what struck me was when I went to make choices for my children in learning and that there wasn't a choice that you had the dominant educational culture, um, whether you went to whatever school you went to. Sure, you had Montessori and Steiner schools, but to me, they were, um, Montessori and Steiner are fabulous, fabulous um, educators in the beginning of the 19th, <laughs> the 20th century. And when um, when they died, the, the dynamic nature of, of their education didn't, isn't keeping up with society and community. So, um, and that was my view that we needed to have a choice. And I was particularly drawn to things like to um, educators like um, John Dewey from the United States who um, set up a, a fairly experimental school um, in the beginning of last century. But his, um, his, I guess, message was that education is not a preparation for life, that education is life itself. And to me, I couldn't find anywhere where that was uh, what was happening in the schools. Um, that you know, families needed to be able to describe the school that their children goes to as as life, as as learning through life and learning through authentic experience and and being um, the families who come to my school or to our school describe it as being magical. And it's magical because it is about life and learning together and it's I love it that they keep describing the place as being magical because children need to in order to be able to um, to grow and to learn they need to be engaged in their learning in what is authentic and means something to them so um, not being one who sits around and waits for somebody else to to, to do it um, we um, with a, a very passionate group of families who felt the same way. We, we started Bold Park from one kindergarten class. We now go up to, to um, um, 18. So we have from 18 months to 18 years, which in since 1999, that's quite a feat for a school of our, of, of our ilk to, to get that way. So it was about that idea of choice and diversity in education, which is not there. And if, um, and it's something which we have to keep fighting for have actually embraced that quote by from John Dewey is that we're talking about you know it is a place of education of lifelong learning not a preparation for life uh, I mean it's like you know 
a lot of schools, it's, oh, you have to send them to kindy to prepare for preschool, and you have to send them to preschool to prepare them for this, and, you know, and before you know it, they're, they're three, they're, they're eight, and they're preparing for their for the end of school exams. I mean, you know, it just doesn't make sense. Let's let's prepare them for the life that they're, that they're embracing now, and um, if we do that, then um, they will be fine by the time to get 18 because it will be a cumulative built developmental kind of process, which means they're going to end up exactly where they should be. And that's part of your, um, that's part of the vision for the school, isn't it? You know, I was looking at yes. your website yesterday and, and um, do you, can you explain a little bit more about what the vision is? Yeah, well, um, I think that the, the, our vision um, is really about how uh, we want our children to fit into society and in, into the community. And the vision of Bog Park, and, the, and it's part of the vision that comes from um, our significant contact with Reggio Emilia and other people is that um, you get your identity and your worth by what you contribute to society. Okay, so we want one of the part of the vision is that we want our we want children to be worthwhile to be become worthwhile, active, happy contributors to the to the world that they live, and and that's um, it's not just about them, it's about how they fit and contribute into the society. So a lot of what we do is is about that. It's about being able to respect and value diversity. Um, to, 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 and in fact, we use the term that we celebrate difference in the school. So when we have children who have um, challenges in life, um, those challenges are celebrated um, and the children are celebrated and you don't have that, um, that thing that happens where they're marginalised because everybody is part of that community and it really, for the children who have been in school for a long time, you can see the different way that they relate to and, and um, um, how they don't judge other people for what they are, but they're very, they're also very good at knowing how they feel about things. They, you know, you've got to know yourself, you've got to know your opinions, and you've got to be able to articulate and communicate those. But how other people interface or interact with how you feel is, is something um, which is up to other people. So it's that respect. Um, that that contribution to society and community and being um, happy and sustainable in in their lives, not um, and really sort of thinking about the values that matter to the human soul and spirit, not just um, to the bodily functions of whether or not you've got lots of things. And I mean that's really important too, and I'm not saying that it's not, but you need to look after the other side rather. Otherwise, the soul and the spirit will, you know, they'll die. <laughs> and then you won't be happy and then you'll have depression and all those other sorts of things. So um, our vision for the school is that the emphasis is not just on the academics, that it's on the development of the whole child and the whole child within a community. It's really about that whole child, isn't it? And that's where you, that's where the, you know, the whole child fits into life, as you said before. So I think it's a fantastic school and a fantastic model for other other schools to um, to uh, you know model from you. So. Well, we have a lot of people. We have um, a lot of people coming to the school from all over the world um, to look at what we do and how we do it. And I, I know they always go away inspired. Um, and and what we try to do is to present what we do as something which is anybody can do it. 
Um, you know, it's it, because it's about the culture of the school and you can change the culture of the school. You can't, it's harder to change the culture of the community and the culture of the parents. But if the culture of the school is about respect and diversity and, and authentic learning and the whole child, um, then the families tend to get sucked into that. And, and what, what ends up happening is that you do change society and community. And that's what they, they say in Reggio. And you can actually see it with the schools in Reggio, the early childhood schools, because they believe that the culture of a society is actually in the hands of the children, that the children can change and are active participants in the society, and they listen to them. You can see a different sort of culture in Reggio Emilia than in other places. And it's, you know, 50 years of a whole city embracing this. But it, it is evident in the culture of the way the, the, the town works and interfaces with each other. It's um, a very interesting social experiment over there. <laughs> and a very successful one by the sound of it too. Lots of happy, oh, yeah, very happy, successful. Little, kids, <laughs> little kids who yeah. uh, who can tell you what they want and, uh, and look after everyone else as well. So it's quite lovely. But, but there's a difference between, I mean, I think this is really, it's a really important point that um, a lot of people get wrong. Um, about what happens in Reggio and what about hap what happens in our school. Happy kids telling you what they want is not the same as happy kids who consider carefully and make choices carefully about what they want. Because we don't want to have a whole lot of kids who are screaming about what they want. We want to have a whole lot of kids who make choices and make decisions based on what is best for them and for those people around them. And there's a big difference in that. Because if you have that, you don't have that, um, that horrible thing that happens when kids become um, out of control in terms of the way they try and control everybody around them because they haven't got any direction about the choices they should make, which are good choices, you know, it's, it's, and I think it's really important that people understand that, that, that schools like ours are not about that, you know, it, it, we don't have rules, but we do have one big rule, you respect other people, you respect yourself and you respect the environment and everything is built around our mutual respect policy, absolutely everything. And if you do that, you don't have to have rules. You don't have, you know, a child will not decide something just because that's what they think they need at the time, because they can't, you know. And so it's, sorry to interrupt, but I just I just think that's really important. It's a really important thing to, to make about Reggio, because the kids aren't, um, without direction or without um, modelling or without um, being required good choices. They are very much so. so that's, that's a pretty amazing thing to be able to teach, you know, from the ground, from the ground up, from yeah. children when they're very young. Yeah, they learn it the best. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have a, a, a two-year-old and, and a nearly four-year-old and, yeah, hopefully I can learn a lot from you. <laughs> From the language that you learn. Our mutual respect policy is that from the you know that the first thing we do is for to help the children to be in control of their own personal space. 
okay? Because we can't always be with them and they need to feel that they're in control. What happens in a lot of schools is the power is taken away from the child to control themselves. They feel powerless, they feel lost. So we give, we arm them with a, with a common language. So whenever something happens in the, in the playground or, you know, that they don't like, we, we help them and model and encourage them to turn around to the other child and say, look, please don't do that. It makes me feel sad or it hurts me or whatever. 99% of the time when they're, when, they're, when they're three, the other child doesn't realise they're impinging on the other person's personal space. And the reaction and the, the response that we teach is at that point, you stop doing it. And then if they don't stop doing it, that's when the child goes to the teacher. And then it's usually handled in, in, a, in a different way that it's like a group learning thing, that that's not an appropriate thing to do. And if we do, you, you know, a couple of months into the three-year-olds coming, they've got that down. And you don't have those sorts of fights and things that happen. You don't have the five-year-old girls coming to us all the time saying, this so-and-so pulled my hair or threw sand in my face or anything because they actually say it directly to the child. When they get to be 15 or 16, they turn around to that person who's, who offers them drugs or asks them to get into a car when they shouldn't and say, no, that is not a good choice. Okay, so, but, but you have to start with the language and the language is very, very powerful and consistent language will, will help them to understand that they are in charge of themselves. <laughs> Because yeah, yeah, that's right. And as you said, you know, young children learn very well and very quickly. Mm. And they, you know, they're they're parrots. So <laughs> I guess you know, you, you keep using that language, and then they can kind of pick that up. And, apply and if you it. if you apply it, if it's consistent, if it's between the staff, between the parents and the teachers, between and and that's something we actually teach the families to use that language at home. So that this is, I mean, one of the things you wanted to know was how does the family support the school? The school supports the family in bringing the children up to understand where they are by by putting these these sort of um, rules down, if you like, or I don't know, by establishing the vocabulary that is used to solve a problem. The, the parents then use it and um, the teachers use it and the students use it and then it be, just becomes part of them. And so they always know how to make good choices. And it's about the choices they make. You know, they can choose to keep throwing sand or they can choose not to. What choice are you going to make? You know, um, it's then, then they learn how to make good choices instead of not really identifying um, it as a bad choice that they made or an inappropriate choice they made. It's... Um, you know, it's you're not a bad child because you threw sand. You you made a, you made a inappropriate choice, which is going to hurt somebody else. Is that really a good thing to do? What other choice could you have made instead? So, if you know what around I'm, that mutual respect. Yeah, and choice, just like I wanted a choice in education. Yeah. <laughs> you have and you didn't have it, so you made your own. That's right. Exactly. I made a good choice. You made a great choice, by the way. Yep, absolutely. Um, well, just on that, actually, um, you know, and I'm sure it's something we could talk about all day. But can you tell me a bit about what you call the three R's of the 21st century? I've been really struck by the rhetoric in the press lately, especially by our prime minister, about you know, she sort of says we have to have the three R's, and the three R's actually aren't even three R's, and that really grates because they're not. You know, reading, writing, and arithmetic, and reading is the only one that starts with an R. So you know, it, it, it's, I mean, it's, 
bit of a problem uh, for me because it just doesn't work. But um, so, but I think that that we think reading, writing, and particular incredibly important tools that we need in our lives. But they are tools. They are not education. They're not learning. They're the tools we use in order to access information, to solve problems, to communicate. But in in if you listen to what um, people are saying in universities, in industry, in society, what we need now for to be um, to be able to be those contributors to society is we need to have respect, and we need respectful relationships. So we need to respect other cultures in our community. We need to respect um, uh, people with life challenges. We need to respect different genders, different body shapes, whatever. We need respect for other people um, and be respectful relationships. We need resilience. Now, what I consider to be um, resilience is that they need to be, kids need to be independent, they need to be able to problem solve, they need to have optimism and they need to be um, to be social beings. Um, and if and the traditional sort of resilience thing is if you knock them off a um, a bike, they're going to pick themselves up and you know go off and go. That happens if they're independent, if they've solved problems, if they're objects, and you know that's the, how they do the picking them up and 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 having another go. Resilience is really important because with hover parents, you know the hover parents phenomenon, children aren't given that opportunity to solve problems because the the parents always solves the problems for them. Yes. You know they're not given independence because the decision. And the choices are always made for them. The world is an extremely pessimistic place. You know, if you're always being told, don't go down to the park because, you know, there might be somebody bad there, you know, it's, it's very pessimistic, it's not optimistic, and it, we need to have that optimism in our lives in order to give it a try. So that's um, resilience. But And responsibility is, I think we have to own our decisions. We have to own the choices we make. If we make a bad choice, that's fine. You can make bad choices, but you need to take the responsibility for making that choice and not try and fob it off onto somebody else. Um, and it's it's not. And sometimes, sadly, choices that people that children make that adults make are um, have really bad consequences. You know, death or really bad maiming, but that's always been the case. You know, and and, and it's, accidents happen, and that you know, if you listen to Tim Gill, that's what he will say. They, if you actually look at the statistics, uh, you know, death um, or maiming on the surface playgrounds is more than on the old sort, not less, more, because people think, or children think, and parents think. That because they're soft, they don't have to take responsibility for being careful on the equipment. You know what I mean? <laughs> it is, so it's, it's so you get more problems than if there was a hard concrete surface there where the people would take care. So it's it's a very um, I, th I think that we have a society which is in danger of saying um, that you're not responsible for yourself, and that's part of in that respect mutual respect thing, taking responsible for your own personal space. Um, irresponsibility for, um, you know, sort of one of the collecting all your things at the end of the day at the school to take it home should not be your mother's responsibility when you're nine. It should be yours, you know, and, 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 but you have so many parents who carry the kids' bags into school. I mean, come on. You know, it's, it's like, 
give the kid some respect. You know, it's some some. I know that you only love them and that you're trying to help them and all that sort of thing, but you're not in the end helping them. Um, you, and that's such a small thing to do, um, which isn't going to kill. It's not going to kill their love for you. Um, you know, it's it's. You need to to do that, and it's it's an epidemic that people are trying to not take responsibility for their choices. You know, on that example, for what you were saying is that you know if we start early with our children smaller, then you know it's going to help. It's going to help us as parents later on when kids can do things for themselves. Take that responsibility. That's right. And if they don't take the, if they don't take the responsibility, then they need to suffer the consequences. And it's you know if if a child doesn't do their homework, and you've done your job as a parent saying you need to do your homework, and they know what the consequences are, they can't to go and write some sort of note that says little Johnny had a toothache and I had to give him three Panadol to knock him out so he could do his homework. You know, it's if you need to say to him, no, you know, you need to take the consequences. They won't do it that often. <laughs> you know, it's once or twice and it'll be, but it, and it's, it's like a harsh thing to do. Yeah. Um, but, if, but then, you know, in that situation, if you feel that the teacher is giving too much homework and it's not appropriate, then the appropriate thing to do is to go and talk to them about why they're doing it and, and, and how that affects your child at home and whether or not there's another way. If, you know, you understand, you know, if there are different ways of doing it, which isn't, uh, which is still sort of supporting the child, but not taking the responsibility away from them to own their choices that they made. Um, so there's, and I think that they're the things which schools have to teach because we're not doing it very well as a society. We're not modelling it very well as a society. Um, and I think that um, all school programs have to have, an, you know, all parents and families and communities have to look at those, but those um, those things are going to be the things which will help them best to remain happy, helpful, contributing members of the society if they can master those. The reading, writing and arithmetic, you know, it's a tool. It's like, it's like a shovel to dig a hole, you know, it's, it's the same sort of thing. And it's important, extremely important, but um, it's not everything that needs to be done. Yeah, absolutely. The, fam the families are very involved in the school. What are some of the mm -hmm. comments that they will come back with? You know, obviously ki the kids think it's magical, the parents think it's magical. Can you give me some examples of, or, or even just, you know, one example? Well, I had a, a, um, a parent today who had a, um, had a child who had been at the school since they were three. And what she was talking about was how, um, loved and she knows that Bold Park um, created um, an honest communication relationship with her teenage daughter, that her, her daughter knows how she feels, knows that her, her feelings are respected and respects hers and will always talk to her mum about, about things. I had teachers from other schools because we've only just got the high school in place um, come back and say that they love the, the from Bold Park talk to them like they were people. This is in high school because they felt, you know, they just talked to us like we're people. Whereas, and that's really sad because that means that the other children don't talk to them yes. like they're people yes. and teachers are people. <laughs> you know, 
So that's, that's the sort of thing. Um, they're very independent um, and they're very much in control of their own learning, which is that response in control of their own space. Um, they understand what is needed. Um, they say, you know, the, the parents come back and say, well, she doesn't like doing all this homework that she's got, but they understand that they have to do it in order to be able to fill the, the contract that they've got with the school. I mean, isn't that what you want? Yeah, um, because <laughs> it's, it's um, you know, we've had other, say, families who've had kids at the school who in other schools would have been really challenging, but, you know, very, very, very extremely bright kids who are still, you know, extremely bright. But if they had been um, squashed as young kids into a particular mould, they would have been considered to be um, um, problem children. But um, because they, you know, we know the children very well, that's one of the things we do at school and which we're very proud of is that we know every child really well. They are with a teaching team for at least two years um, They because we multi deliberately multi-age so they have longer time to, to, to learn what they need to. You know, people, kids actually don't learn in neat little 12-month packages like the curriculum would like you think. They don't do that. You know. We allow them. And knowing uh, the children um, in the school really, really well, we're able to support them in a way which um, perhaps doesn't happen in, in other schools. Um, we're able to individualise the them and the way you, because you can well, understand. It's an interesting thing because we know them well, we can individualise them, but we expect them to be part of a community of learners. So it's it's a bit of a dance, you know. We call, you reckon it's it's like dance. But if you have a child who, for instance, one child who we had at the school who's now you know doing TE this year, but who started, um, who should be year ten, eleven, he's two years ahead of himself, tops the the whole country in maths and all that sort of thing. He, um, as a three-year-old, um, I taught him, and I said I never want to, I don't want to teach him when he's ten because he would not sit down on a map session, you know, he couldn't sit. He would wander around the classroom and fiddle and stuff. And I let him do it because I understood this. I knew this child and understood him that he needed to do that because he could tell what was happening in the math session better than any other child who was sitting on the mat. His style was to wander and that kept going. He needed to wander because while he was wandering, solving problems in his head and, you know, sort of, creating these amazing mathematical things like trying to create um, well, one of the things he did was to try and compose music from, from the um, movement of the stars in the galaxy. You know, so he's an incredible musician. Now, that sort of child, if you have got a situation where they have to sit down at a desk and they're not allowed to wander around because we know that, you know, he's going to ace everything anyway and knows everything, but it's more what we had to do was to teach him before he went to high school, about this notion of responsibility and doing what you have to do, because that's um, if he wants, you know, that's what he needs to do in society. That all the other things great, but for a little bit of time he needs to do that, and we did that, and he's done really, really well. So um, that that sort of thing, um, knowing the kids well, because we have two teachers in every classroom with a maximum of twenty six all the way through the school. Um, having them in the same class for two years really means that, that we can support each child on an individual level with the, the 
community or the community of the school. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> I know. When I type about, I think people think, you know, you've been talking about getting together, but then individual, but it's, you know, it's what they can contribute to the group. Some, some kids can't contribute to the group in some way or don't contribute um, well. And our role is then to help them to become a, um, a useful member of that group in, in, in the whole thing so that when they go and have to work in a team or be part of a family or be you know, playing with the kids down at the, the playground, they can, um, they can take the role which is, which is good for them. So it's, it's almost like a, you've got a basketball team or a football team and not every, you know the team works together for a common goal but you every player has a different position and a different role and different strengths so that you know I'm not kicking at one end I have to I'm better at defending so I go down the other end and then the yeah. whole team um, sort of but the, the sport analogy doesn't suit us very well. <laughs> It's more like, more like I wanted to say, um, uh, some mountain climbers. <laughs> you know, they're all connected and they all need to know their own way and go their own way, but they're all connected. You know, yeah. As we do that, though, is we've got a very, very strong um, um, arts program so that the children do one day a week, totally immersed in the arts every week. Um, and we have two streams, one which is what we call the performing arts, which is music, map, music, dance, drama, and then a um, tactile arts, which is visual arts um, and kitchen garden arts. And they spend 12 months doing one stream or the other and we change over in the middle of the year. And one of the biggest things for getting that teamwork working is, is the arts day because two collaborative one at the moment they're, they're writing together a, a, um, a production that they're putting on in August. They've written it and now they're putting it together and all just, they do everything and these are seven to nine-year-olds. And, and it's just such an amazing thing. We get the parents of other kids commenting on how much another child has grown up through the process of the arts programs. So, you know, it's, it's that and we do that because... We listened to the children, they wanted longer time in art. But the arts allows children to communicate with each other and with us in a different way and show different things. It's fantastic for the development of self-confidence and, and, um, and for having to work in a team. You cannot do a production without working in a team. Really well, really well. So, you know, we have all sorts of layers to the school. The nature-based is huge. Um, we have a classroom of nine to 11 year olds that spend two days a week every week out in the in the um space which is a a section of the school which is been uh, like a like a like a bush and the kids um build communities and huts and um uh, do all sorts of challenges within that space which are and the teachers set them Challenges and draw out of the, the curriculum that they need, and then we have um, the four-year-olds spend a day a week in a, a childhood wild space where they start that process. And our wilderness playgroup is a fabulous, a fabulous thing to help um, start the whole, you know, the whole journey because the parents are in the wild space with the kids, and that's where they start to realise that their children are actually more resilient than they think, that they can do more, that they can be with them and um, it's okay. 
okay, they can climb a tree and they can start to let go and not be quite so hovery, you know. Um, and so we we have this this sort of thread and process through the school. And once we up into the middle school college and adolescents are very different animals, um, they do things like go out um, on um, camps in the desert or um, um, at the moment they're doing horse care, which they is, and it sounds like a different type of thing, but they they go to riding for the disabled, they're learning how to care and to build relationships with horses. It's been a very powerful medium for um, our particularly younger, less, more timid kids to challenge themselves to build a relationship with a horse, which is hard. Um, and because horses are big and scary and, you know, but it's need a little bit more um, oomph in what they do than the younger kids and they don't really want to go in and play in the in the bush because they just want to hang you know if we had if, you know if they had a real bush take them out into the real bush but if they had a real bush where they could go and things that teenagers do that'd be, fan, be fantastic but at lunchtime and around the place they just want to hang you know. Yeah, yeah. So I read, um, I read somewhere the other day that um, about designing play spaces, and it said, you know, kids, what kids wanted, and I think it was, it was actually Karen Martin from the University of WA, mm. and one of her reports was that kids just kind of they do want to hang. Adolescents do want to hang, and they want things to sit on in playgrounds or in spaces that they can just sit on and, you know, do what teenagers do these days. Yeah, they listen to music and they talk and they. And they, you know, what we're, we're at the moment, they're in the process of building um, a bicycle dome, which is a dome out of bicycle wheels, which they're going to grow um, um, creepers over, and so they can hang in the bicycle. I mean, it's, that's just what. Um, but you, that doesn't mean that you don't take them out into the natural world straight away. They don't go out of the bush and start building and exploring like the younger kids do. They will if you take them out there enough, <laughs> but but straight away they don't. So we so you know that's what I mean about us knowing developmental stages. I mean, children are different. They grow. They bring different things to the conversation, and it's really important that educators understand that it's not you know and um, understand it's okay that as a teenager you just want to hang. I think that the problem with community is we don't give them spaces to hang, and where they go to hang, they're considered to be a nuisance, like shopping centres and places like that. And they get kicked out. <laughs> That's right. I mean, when I was a kid, I, we used to all go down to the swimming pool and hang around the swimming pool. You know, I lived in the country, and that's what we did in the country was go down to the swimming pool and or down to the footy on Sunday afternoon and sit on the car bar, um, bonnets, and we didn't ever watch the football. You touched on a point before when you said that, you know, educators need to really important that educators understand the developmental stages and what kids need at different ages. But I think as parents too, you know, you really that's really important as well so that I don't think when my kids are teenagers and they just want to hang out that they're kind of just being vagrant or whatever, <laughs> I don't know, you know. You know, image people have of teenagers, but it's really they're just doing what teenagers have done since the beginning of time. You know, it's it's yeah. it's a very social time. You know, the teenagers need to to form bonds and work out how to um, negotiate uh, relationships with their peers. And a lot of that is done um, through hanging, you know, and, and, and working out what is, you know, how the relationship 
points, where they fit in, where, you know, where somebody else fits in, they can do to to support each other. Um, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't also challenge them to contribute to society to do other things because they're, they're quite up for that. Um, it's just... It, it, it's just that they need that hanging time as well. And they need to be able to do it without being pushed. And it, so when they're, when they're hanging, if they don't have spaces to hang in or, you know, appropriate spaces to hang in, do they, are they more likely to be, um, I guess, to the allure of technology and be hanging out in those spaces where we're not able to... Exactly. He's not able to look after them. Yeah, I mean the the parents that sit there and complain about their kids being on Facebook all the time or iChat or wherever that whatever they're doing. Um, when you ask them, but you know, do you let them go down to the park with it? No. Really important thing for them to do at this stage is is to talk to their friends in whatever way. So the, you're right. Um, today's teenagers are coming out in technology, and that's the fault of the adults. Okay, because if you ask any teacher, teenager, would you rather go and be face to face with your friends? And they'd pick that every single time. And so, you know, you need, um, we, we need to understand that. That's right. So everything's all about balance. You know, technology, is, technology is great for a lot of things. And we use a lot of technology at the school. But we use technology to um, help the children to understand and to communicate and to create. We don't have games, um, which is most educational things on computers um, are on, you know, apps and things are games. They're stimulus response. They require a thought in your head. They require a response. And so what we do is look at technology and say, okay, well, we support our children to understand that technology can be a great thing to have to help you to understand the world and to communicate with the people around you and to and to um, you know sort of new ideas and that the the um, way that that's the way we use technology. We have to get the balance of technology right. You know, Richard uses plug go outside um, is not and and he himself says it's not realistic. You know, you can't do that, but you have to get the so that it's not too much of the technology's side. And that's why all we are going to have between 30 in primary school and uh, at least between 30 and 40% of the school curriculum being conducted outside. Um, and um, in, in early childhood, it's more like 60 or 70%. So, you know, we have absolutely beautiful rooms, beautiful inside environments, and I can take people around on a tour of the school and not find one child inside, you know, which is fantastic. But you know, yeah, it's, it's kind of embarrassing. They walk around and it looks like an empty school because they're not even in spaces where, you know, you can see much. So, um, but... Um, but we, I think we've got a, a balance and we're working for a balance and that's our message to the parents. Don't switch off. Get the balance right. Help the children to make choices about their lives and how they and how they deal with it. Help them to make the right choice about the TV program they watch. Don't switch off. It doesn't help. But you can help them to make and you can help them to make choices which are things which will help them to understand our world better. You know, or to you know, it's 
it's like everything in life. It's about balance and harmony. Tell us a little bit about what happened um, in the bush classroom. So when when you had the nine to eleven year olds go outside and spend a couple of days a week outside, what you know what did you what did the teachers find was happening? Mm. Last year it was a really interesting, um, it was the first time that we'd sort of formalised that particular thing. They'd always gone outside but the, the teachers decided they were going to have a bush classroom, um, which was a, a something that the kids understood was going to happen and it was going to be where they went to learn. Um, and they went out um, into this and they thought it would be, all be about building um, huts and all this sort of thing. And after a while, they found that wasn't working. The, the, the kids were losing interest because the teachers were interfering too much in really what was happening in, out there. They were trying to, in, they were so intent on, you know, meeting their requirements in terms of curriculum and things that they were, they were imposing stuff on them that the kids found just took the magic away from the experience. Um, but when they really listened to the children too, what was happening was that they were really trying to sort out a society and a community there, um, and and establish rules of, of engagement of how they how the whole thing worked. And what it grew into, which was a really amazing thing, is there was this really deep um, and year long. Um, experience with discovering the political system of Australia and recreating it in the wild space with a prime minister. I was a queen. Um, Beautiful. Helen was Helen was a, the um, who's the team leader in in primary was a governor general and they had a prime minister and leader of the opposition and ministers for various things and they they formed debated and passed laws and. Um, they had elections and you know the whole bit so with preferential voting and everything and these Great way to learn about politics yeah, all from going out in the bush you know i mean this is what you know flabbergasts but those, those teachers who are in that classroom again this year learned a lot about how to manage the classrooms so this year they're not doing that anymore. This year they are actually, because they've sorted out the laws and the rules and, and how things are going, um, they, they have a council. They all sit and debate and decide what to do with with another class as well. And um, they are building um, really significant structures, um, mud huts, um, you know, wooden huts and you know, big tree houses and things like that with a lot more um, a, a lot more understanding of the materials that they're using, the space that they're in and what they need to do in order to finish this particular the, the projects that they have. So um, but everything that happens there, the children's docu the children document, they reflect on, they debate, they discuss, um, you know, everything that would happen in a classroom can happen outside. And, but it happens in an authentic way. It's 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 happening with something real, and I think that that's you know something which um, which we do a lot. You know, I'll tell you a really really good one at the moment. In February, our um, middle school um, science teacher buried half a cow in the playground somewhere because they're studying forensics. Okay, so this year, and they've done all sorts of things, and she baked them a cake last week where she put lots of things in the cake and they had to, you know, divide it into quadrants with string and then excavate the cake and get things out, and they're doing that with the cow now. So they're, they're, they're actually excavating the cow. Now, um, 
you know, the maths that's involved in that and in the graphing, that everything that's involved in, in that particular thing is amazing and the scientific um, processes and, you know, skills that they have to have um, and understand really well to do that um, will support them forever and they'll never forget the day they dug up a cow. I think that doesn't mean that we don't have to drill and practice some things because obviously you do. But we even we even find creative ways to do that. So you know, it's, 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 um, we have to because part of it is motivation and engagement. And that's the responsibility of the teacher um, to be able to find ways to engage a child in learning. And not everybody gets engaged by the same things. Um, but um, the teachers are pretty good at, at, you know, inviting the children into an experience and then helping them to connect and engage. And it can be really, it can be really simple. I know, like I'll take my kids outside and we'll we learn our colours by looking at, you know, let's find, see how many red leaves we can find. Let's find, you know, everything that we can find is red. Um, we count the, you know, you, you count things in nature. So how many petals on that flower? How many times does it take you to um, to blow the dandelion fluff off? Yeah. <laughs> and I think and my kids are more engaged. That's an interesting one because, it's, you know, it's not even, you know, collecting red leads but then putting all the red leads together and realising that they're not all the same red yeah. and finding the, the words and the vocabulary to describe the different types of red that you've got. I mean, this is just, you know, it's a, nature is, um, you know, a classroom in itself and that's why we call it a bog park. We don't call um, our, you know, playground a playground because we want to, to we want people to think about it this is a space where learning takes place and um, you know in play a playground is fine and play happens but what is a children's play it's how they learn so in order to communicate and put people in a frame of mind so that they understand that we value um, our outside as as something more than than the playground over in the park um, it's, it's a classroom so. Your outdoor classroom, which, you know, that's what that's what life is, as you said at the start, you know, it's about immersing them in life and teaching them about life. And life, you know, a lot of life, great stuff happens outside and they miss it if they're sitting in a classroom sometimes, don't they? Yeah, I love those, some of those cartoons where they've got a kid sitting at a, watching a screen, um, watching, you know, a tiger and outside there's this amazing thing happening, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh. It's, it's, you know, it's balance, it's balance. Those children might have spent the last two days playing outside and just need to have their little bit of screen time. You know, you know screen time, that's right. I mean, we, you know, for myself, there's a, I'm sure you've seen it or you, your kids have, have talked about it at school, um, there's a, a little English pig called Peppa Pig and she jumps in muddy puddles a lot. And so we jump in muddy puddles. Well, you know, we watch Peppa Pig because it's around dinner time, so that's a great time for me to get the dinner ready <laughs> and practical. Um, but when it rains, we go out and jump in the muddy puddles. Mm. The International Mud Day. The International yes. Mud Day is something which we're very proud of. Um, we actually founded it, um, Bold Park. I went to a world forum on the conference in Belfast in 2009, and Vishnu, who is a um, one of the NAC members from Nepal, was, we were talking about the dilemma of mud, and all us Western um, communities were saying how dreadful it was because the parents wouldn't let the kids play in mud because they get 
they had that place dirty and for us in Western Australia it was well we haven't actually got any mud because we're on the sandy plain and you know mud doesn't grow here and um, but Vishnu said um, well we've got lots and lots of mud but the children a lot of the children can't play in it because they only have one set of clothes and they can't get them dirty and they can't wash them so when I came home I told that story to a group of seven-year-olds and um, one of the little girls said, my mum can make clothes um, to send to them. Um, and we, we talked about it and we decided in the end that we would send money uh, to Vishnu to buy them clothes because we wouldn't know what sizes they were and all those sorts of things. Um, and they raised $1,000 to send to Vishnu who arranged a mud day um, for, for an orphanage out there. And since then, every year we raise money to send to Nepal so that these orphans can celebrate in mud. And we connect with them by playing in the mud at the same day um, in, in Perth. So we, you know, we, we, we like that idea that the kids are connected through the mud, through the earth, if you like. We're all connected through the earth. So, so we immerse ourselves in the earth and in some way you're touching somebody somewhere else in the world who's immersing themselves in mud. Um, this year, um, six of our families are going to Nepal to celebrate Mud Day with um, Vishnu and the orphanage, and they've also raised a lot of money to do a renovation project in the in the um, orphanage while they're there. So, um, and next year we're we're hoping that we can um, get the sponsorship and to bring some of the orphans down to celebrate Mud Day with us. So. To us, International Mud Day is not just about going out and playing in the mud. It's 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 part of that global citizenship. Um, it's part of that uh, celebrating and understanding diversity. Vishnu always sends us these beautiful photos and the kids always write letters to our kids uh, to say thank you. Um, and we're always jealous because they jump off the backs of elephants into the mud and there's no way we can do that. I did see photos. There's some wonderful photos. I'll, I'll have to list the website, but there's some wonderful photos of uh, of the mud day and what they do over there. And it just looks it looks like yeah. great fun riding on the elephants and jumping off. Yes. We can't do that. We thought a kangaroo wouldn't wouldn't just wouldn't cut it. This year, this year, we're building a um, mud slides. So the kids are going to be sliding down slides into the mud pond, which uh, will be kind of exciting, a bit different. But we have to truck our mud in. I mean, we really, we literally go to places where they make clay roof tiles yeah. and um, get their mud and truck it. I don't know what it's like where you are. You've probably got good mud. We've got we, lots of mud in Victoria, yes. I mean, a lot of things are happening. There's a lot of um, places around the world now who are, who are taking on that International Mud Day idea because um, we floated it in Hawaii in 2011 at the World Forum and it sort of got got out there as something to do. But I really want to take it to the point where people actively go and seek partners in another part of the world of, for the day. So it's not just about playing in mud, it's, it's also got that thing of, you know, children all over the world are, are really the same and they're connected together. And if we if we can connect um, through through the earth, then you know I think that's a really beautiful thing and something which the children, the Bold Park, have certainly um, it's enriched their lives having a day, but having my day as also that connection to somebody else, not just about themselves. We're very proud of that. It's a it's a really um, wonderful way that Bold Park has been able to. Um, 
foster a global relation, a, you know, a, a global citizenship idea within the school. Um, wonderful, wonderful for the kids, definitely, and for the families. And the parents, the parents love it. Yeah, they were <laughs> the they're over there are really excited. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah, they would be. They would be. And, you know, like you said, kids all over the world are, are essentially, you know, they're kids and there's nothing like as a parent just hearing your kids laugh and have a great time and, you know, mm-hmm. giggle and have fun and play in the mud or whatever they're doing. But, you know, all over the world that sounds the same. When we first, the first day, that we, the, the first time we did this, um, I was working with a group of kids to build a mud, a mud hut, a, a little mud hut. And um, there was one little girl there who was playing in the mud and just loving it. And, and she turned around to her mum and said, this is the best day of my life. And her mum tears. And I said to her, what? And she said, you know, I've just been such a bad mother. I've never let her play in mud before. You know? And she was, she felt so guilty. <laughs> it was funny. Um, but, you know. But, you know, but now she does. Now she probably does. Yeah. So that's even. Yeah. And that child has always been the most into it in the, in the mud days ever. Yeah. Um, and she, but it was just, this is the best day of my life. Oh. Get money. <laughs> And I think sometimes as, you know, sometimes as parents, it all feels a bit too hard to get your kids out in, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's, it's that thing about not, not, having, not having to do it every day, all day, you know. It's, it's about that balance. It's, you know, sometimes there's a time and a place for everything. Sometimes they need to be clean and you need them to be clean. And, and sometimes go for it, you know, it's, it's, it's. Yeah. It's about being. It's about them understanding too that that's okay. You know, sometimes there's a time and a place for everything. You know, in life, and that that's one of them. Because yeah. we our kids don't play in the mud every day, but they have mud days, and the parents are told that it's going to be a mud day, and so they pack extra clothes. Mm. Yep. So it's just about preparation. <laughs> yeah. So it's about those choices you make. <laughs> and the parents might have a bit of fun jumping in the mud and sliding down the mud slide as well. <laughs> Oh, yeah, they will. The parents always get involved. They never, and the, and the teachers too, especially the new teachers. They sort of get targeted by the old teachers. It's, 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 a, it's a very interesting, actually, because the teachers are often worse at, at um, being totally um, really, really playful in the mud and really getting into it than the kids. Yes. <laughs> can imagine. Imagine some of your um, personal, or your professional development days are rather interesting. I've, I've seen a few art pictures of you doing archery and all these outdoor, you know, things and, and indoor things with nature as well. And it just looks like an amazing way to um, be an educator and be part of that as well. Well, I think I think with with um, with teaching, um, you have to be if you if you're teaching for. T- citizens of the world you have to be a citizen of the world and that means you have to have a, a depth of understanding and knowledge about yourself and about the world around you and too often professional development in um is is industry specific but what for me the industry specific thing is that you need to um get in touch with you know i mean we've, we've studied plato and socrates and you know um made um felt and woven things and you know you name it we've we've we've, we've done it um 
but we do the industry specific things as well but it's just like so that there's a, there's a balance and there's a, there's a there's a depth to the actual people because teachers need to be more than what the curriculum is or they, they need to have interests and they need to um, bring their skills and their understandings which are outside teaching into the into the community so that we have a depth and a richness there which isn't isn't there if you're only focused on industry-specific professional development. So we never do industry-specific. <laughs> Can't imagine you do much that's, um, that's uh, standard. Well, I, I do the other stuff and, and I send them off to other people to do the industry-specific. <laughs> and you get all the fun. That's great. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Why, Why should not? You? You're the you're the you're the principal and the and the leader of their school. So um, and they're lucky to have you. So it's a, it sounds like a lot of fun. Um, okay, so we've covered a fair bit of a fair bit of stuff today, and it's been great. So sounds like lots of fun. You know, um, if there was a school like that around for my children, that's and hopefully maybe in a couple of years there is over over here uh, in Victoria, then um, I'd be sending my kids there in a heartbeat. So. It sounds like a wonderful way to learn. And there are some great schools around Australia. Just look a bit closer. Yeah. Um, you know, because you'll find them. You'll find them around the place. There are there are educators who are trying to make a difference everywhere. They just need a little bit more support. Yeah. There's a, I'm not sure if you know. There's a lady named. Um, I, I mentioned to you before the School of Student Leadership, and they're mm -hmm. over here in Victoria, and they're fantastic experiential learning for. 15-year-olds who go for a term to, it's wonderful. And they spend most of the time outside. You know, they don't, or a lot of the time outside, they don't have a mathematics textbook. As I said, they have a compass. Mm. Um, you know, and quite often they get looked at as a, you know, as a camp, an outdoor camp for kids. But they're learning as much or more, you know, particularly with life schools, like you said. Yes. Um, and there's a there's a kindergarten teacher I know of who um, has just won an award over here for getting her kids out in nature, getting them outside of the classroom and taking them for walks on the beach and doing all that stuff. So, um, yeah. anyway, there's lots of people out there. There's lots of but the problem is that we need to, we need to get the leadership out there who are, who are doing it because they're the people who make the choices. Um, ultimately, and um, it's it's actually hard to, to engage the leadership in the conversation, the educational leadership around Australia in the conversation. It's very difficult because um, they are um, bogged down with compliance and all sorts of other things. I understand that, but they need to support those wonderful creative teachers that they have, and there's there's lots of them. Um, so that they can have a consistency. That's one of the things about Bold Park, which is vital, is that because we all have the same philosophy of learning in life and um, and it's consistent through the school, although it changes a bit because of what the children bring to the plate and their age and their developmental stages and things, um, it, it, it's the whole school. Whereas, uh, you know, if you have a kindy teacher who's doing these wonderful things but the kids go into a pre-primary next year where they're put into into desks. You know, it doesn't actually it doesn't work. We need to get, you know, that we need to get schools where um, the the underlying philosophy of life and learning is consistent through the school, whether it's a dominant culture or it's a, the choice that we've made or Montessori or Steiner or whatever it is. It needs to be that it's consistent through the school and then that way the children have a chance to be able to really connect with learning. 
Um, and there's no reason, I don't see there's any reason why governments can't do that, why they can't have an area in, in BitHub in the country, but in the in the city where they can't have in a, a clusters of, um, you know, Bolpart style schools, dominant traditional style schools that in an area and the teachers choose to go to the one that suits them and the parents choose to send their kids to the ones that they choose. There is absolutely no reason why they can't do that. And in Western Australia, it's probably worse than in Victoria because I know they do that a little bit in Victoria. But in Western Australia, it's dominant culture the whole way through. And the dominant culture is the traditional academic focus and that's what they do. They have the other things on the side that they're very proud of, but it's actually what they're mostly interested in is academic results. So and that, I guess that's um, a lot about uh, conforming to NAPLAN and um, those sort of things as well. NAPLAN. <laughs> <laughs> I nearly, it was nearly a slip of the tug. <laughs> uh, we, we have to do NAPLAN, but um, because, you know, it's an independent school, our funding is tight to doing NAPLAN. But we do it differently. We um, every nap plan um, week, I go around to the classrooms that are doing it and give them a care basket of treats of lollies and marlow and stuff like that. Uh, the kids know that it's coming and they think it's the best thing out. Um, they they sit up comfortably in um, in rooms with um, you know, and there's no pressure put on them whatsoever, and we don't train them um, because. We, we, what we do is we, we help them to be familiar with the language that they're likely to encounter in the test so that they know what it means when a multiple choice says describe or, you know, what describes or, you know, we help them to understand the vocabulary of the tests. But we don't spend um, four months of the year training them to do the NAP plan. Um, they probably get a week of um, keeping them in touch with what it actually means, well, how to do multiple tests in year three. I mean, you know, year three is multiple tricky. It just doesn't, doesn't work. And, 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 um, and we don't care about the results and the parents don't care about the results because it's a moment in time and it doesn't tell you whether or not a child had a fight with his mum on the way to school that day. And it doesn't tell you about whether or not they, you know, you know their dad died or, you know, it's, it's just so... Putting everyone in one basket. <laughs> I've got nothing. I've actually got no no um, problems with the test. If we could get the results two weeks after they've done them, but getting the results five months after means that it's useless to us. You know, maybe if the child is still five months later in the same point as they were that day in May, then there's something wrong with your teachers, and you really need to look about whether whether or not that teacher should be teaching because it's you know, and nothing is ever a surprise. We always know before they take the test. You know, but it can be. It can, they can help with diagnosis in terms of, um, you know, the, the, perhaps this particular style of, you know, part of an English, um, you know, conventions. Um, you know, maybe we need to put a little bit more effort into helping them, the kids, to understand that. That not on an individual basis, but for the school thing. But we don't get the tests. Um, they're good diagnostic tests. They're just is. They mark them in two weeks, apparently, and then they massage the results to suit what they want. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> and it just so doesn't, and that's why we don't like them. It's not because of the tests. It's not because taking tests isn't something you can do because you need to get baselines and things like that. But um, 
Our kids actually love taking that plan because we make it something which is not a stress, which is actually a privilege, and we tell them that this is about information for the teachers so that we can help them more. And that's why, and we don't have any stress or any problem. And, and, all you, our and your parents don't, your parents then don't put stress on the kids either, so. No, the only parents who put stress on the kids are usually those parents who've come from other schools at the beginning of that year, and they're used to that sort of culture in the schools. Um, but we, um, this year we really, we didn't have any stress at all anywhere. Wow. So it was, um, but I did a, um, fairly significant rant about it on on um, our parent communication thing beforehand, uh, connected to Sir Ken Robinson's latest oh, TED Talk. That. I did see that. Interesting, yes. And so I, I got them to watch that and I had a little bit of a rant and I didn't get anything back other than I love the way that Bob Park does nap plans. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a political exercise, that's all it is. And you know, if people at least owned it and took responsibility for their choices and got out there and said, this is a political exercise, mm. it's got actually nothing to do with the kids mm. or anything, it's just a political thing, then that'd be okay, because at least you're being honest. Is there one question that teachers or parents, say, is there one question that parents ask you the most? Um, I think in lots of different ways, what they ask, what they always ask, is, "Am I making the right decision for my child?" And they want me to say, "You know, you are." Um, and and they say there's lots of different ways that they ask that question, but that's really what they're trying to get to. And one of the one of the questions is, "How will my child? You know, will they be able to go into another school?" I mean, obviously, you know, we'd rather say to them, "Well, we don't, you know, leave them here, and they'd never have to go into another school week." that obviously um, and, and the thing is that we know that they transition exceptionally well into other schools because they have learned to communicate and to work in teams and all those other sorts of things we know that um, so we can we can tell them that but people ultimately everybody parents and teachers in our school all we want is the best for the kids their kids and, and parents are terribly anxious these days about you know am I going to make the decisions for my child which will mean that they will um, will succeed and I think that that my answer to them is you know if you in making the decision for your child you have to know about the things that you value so examine yourself and your life and what is it in life that you value what is it that you want um, for your child um, in terms of values? And then you make the decision based on what you think is going to help them um, to um, achieve those values or to have those values as their own when they grow up. So, you know, if, you're, if you have a, um, a value which is and, and most parents will say that their values are that they want them to be um, a family. They want them to be to be happy. They want them to be contributors to the to the community and all those sorts of things. Um, very rarely do they say, "I want um, um, them to be rich and powerful," and you know that sort of thing. Um, although. A lot of the questions are, will they still be able to be a doctor if they come to Bold Park? Get a job. No. So, They're doing forensics. 
Uh, well, you know, it's just, yeah, exactly. And it lasts, you know, they did biogenesis last year. I mean, it's not, but to me, what they're asking that is, is, is not necessarily, will my child be a doctor or, or a, um, um, a lawyer? It's, are they going to be okay? Are they going to be able to look after themselves as adults? You know, are they, are they going to be able to, to own a house, to have children, to do all those sorts of things, which as a society we value? And I said, if you make choices which have those values in mind, then your child will always be okay, because because the the, the values are, um, you know, those values of community, of happiness, of of sustainability, of um, you know, sort of just being um, happy members of the community who are still connected to the family and love me, you know, then then. Um, you don't have to make the decision to put him into school where he can become a doctor when he's eight years old. You know, and the reality is that most children who parents, the number of doctors that people want to have, the world would be in a terrible place because there'd be lots of doctors and no patients. So, you know, it's. Um, but I, I really think that's what they're asking with that is, will my child be able to do whatever he wants to do? And I think by going to a school like Bold Park or making the choices to go to a school like Bold Park, they will be able to do whatever they want to do because they will know what they want to do and they'll know themselves and they won't be doing something because of what somebody else wants them to do. And they'll be in line. And the skills to give you life skills from day one, so. And to make choices. I don't. I don't necessarily think that it's a good thing for one for children to go straight from school to uni, um, doctors and things like that. It, it's it's the, it's also about that. You know, that it's not good for teachers to go from school to school to school. You know, they they have there's a shallowness there of experience, life experience, which is very hard to fill. You know, you need someone on the line to have that understanding of your place in the world and you're not going to get it if you're always in a closet of the school community. It's just as but, um, so, I mean, that's, parents are concerned that their child is going to be all right. And, and I try to say it by get with your values and then see if the choices you make are the ones that will help them to reach those values. Does that make sense? Yep, that's great advice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. You know, I haven't been in that world yet of education, really, my own children because they're very young. But heading towards that stage of their life, it's really helpful for me to um, to hear something like that. So thank you <laughs> personally, but I'm sure it'll help many other people as well. So, um, and Gillian, how do you find more about if we want to check out your school and what all the things you're up to? How can we find out a bit more about that? Um, really, you just need to go to our website, which is www.boldpark.com. Very easy. Um, we're in the transition at the moment. We have this amazing new program, which is a parent communication program, which is just, if you had another hour, I'd tell you about it. It's amazing. Um, it's just, it's one of our aims has always been to make learning visible. And we've found a tool which does that instantly. So we have these, these things happen where something can happen in the playground, a photo can be taken, a learning story can be written and the parent can see it before they come to pick the child up from school so they can then talk about the child about it. It's just amazing. But we've got to get better at doing both the website because the, because the, um, 
the community, parent communication is a, is a, um, a closed community. One of, our, one of our missions, one of our stated missions is to discuss um, education and um, with the rest of the community. And it's not that we're telling people how to do things, um, it's just we're saying, well, this is us. Um, take from it what you find useful and, um, and um, join in the discussion because we need to discuss it as a community because there's something wrong with what we're doing now. We need to find an alternative which creates the right balance for everybody um, so that everybody has an opportunity to, um, to grow up, um, living life as they grow up and being um, in, in their future, in their adult lives, uh, being members of the community which contribute and to everybody. Sounds a bit and, communist. And themselves. <laughs> it's well, not. It's, but Reggio is very socialist. It's yeah. a very socialist community. Yeah. But that's so not that's take not what you need from, from all the good bits of what, you know, of, of lots of different things and meld them together. That's right. And that's, that's how Reggio started. Studied lots and lots of different um, for educational philosophers and life philosophers, and they took what that's what we took. We studied lots of different educational philosophers, societies, communities, in, you know, experiments that have happened around the world, and um, we take from that what relates to our society, you know, our particular situation, our context, because you can't, even from where you are, your context, being in the country. Being in Victoria is totally different from being in the middle of the city, which is what we, we're right in the middle of Perth. So, you know, totally different context. Um, but the underlying principles would probably be the same. I imagine you're a breath of fresh air right in the middle of the city too. So, <laughs> with lots of fun and lots of gig coming from that playground, I dare say. So, oh, yeah. Always happy there. <laughs> Sorry, not the playground, the wild, the uh, the outdoor classroom, of course. Outdoor classroom. <laughs> Excellent. Much nicer, much nicer. Um, thank you so much. Do you have anything to add um, before we no. wrap up? No. Cool. Well, thank you so no, much. So thank you for the opportunity to um, to have the discussion, and and I hope that it you know it all goes really well. Um, as I said, we need to discuss it. The, the community needs to start discussing. It, you know, and they are, they are starting to discuss it, but leadership needs to. We need to sit Julia down and talk to her. Um, because has she, been to, has she been to visit Bowl Park? No, no, no. But Brendan Nelson did when he was the education minister. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's just one of those things. It's, um, the, you know, the leadership, the, the, the people who make the decisions for all of us uh, um, limit the decisions that other people can make. It's you know it's like that. The decisions that are made at, at political level limit the decisions that the principals feel so they, they can make at a school level, lim which limits the decisions that the teachers feel they can make in the classroom, which limits the decisions that children think that they can make in the, in the learning environment. So somehow or other, we you know that that chain of decision making, which 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 causes a narrowing. Um, somehow or other we need to get to the people at the top of the decision-making tree and, and get them to understand that, to, to understand just how um, difficult the things like the national curriculum, which does and doesn't, you know, it's, it's not as too bad, but it does, it does um, sort of limit con con 
the content of what you were going to learn, don't they realize that if you have everybody in the country learning that very narrow range of content, what you're going to have is a very, very uneducated society because what 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 makes the society is having that diversity of knowledge that people can use to draw on. If everybody's got knowledge, um, it's going to be because there's so much knowledge. My dad used to tell a story when he started to teach, everything he needed to teach was in one book. Because that's sort of like the knowledge that it could be held in one fairly thick book. Now um, you know, it fills cities with the knowledge that we have. So saying we need to know that, that and that. It, you know, it's, we need a written society than that. I think, it, um, I think maybe your uh, political party at the, at the school, your ballpark community political <laughs> outdoor, <laughs> was it the outdoor space, outdoor, um, outdoor play space, could maybe be our next, uh, our next educational uh, well, one of them, one of them has one of the little girls has an aim that she wants to be prime minister, and she'd make a brilliant one. So there you Fantastic. go. Fantastic. Well, on that note, I hope that she does. I would vote for her. <laughs> she sounds amazing, and, and you make a lovely queen as well. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. Thanks, thank you, Julian. Rose and I'll talk to you soon. Okay, so that is the episode of Nurture in Nature Radio for today. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Jill McAuliffe. She is a great educator, a great advocate for kids and just an all-round great human being. On next week's show, I have a very special treat for you. It was actually the very first interview I did as part of my interview series when I started doing this work. That interview is with Lenore Skenazy of freerangekids.com. Now, Lenore, if you haven't heard of her, she was the woman who a few years ago now was raked over the coals for letting her son ride the New York subway to find his own way home. And she was dubbed America's worst mum. So now from that experience she has become a passionate advocate for kids and for a more free-range childhood. So tune in for that one. It is a beauty. She's a really great character Lenore and a lot of fun to talk to and she is such a passionate advocate for letting kids be kids. So just before I wrap up today I'd like to ask you again if you can help me. I want to share this message of Nurture in Nature Radio, the message that I'm spreading and the message that I'm sharing from the interviews that I've done, which is so important, as you know, you're listening in. Um, So the way you can help me spread that message is to leave a review on iTunes or on Stitcher or whatever other platform you're listening to us on. Uh, Let us know what you think. Let us know if you've got any suggestions for future guests or future topics that you'd like to hear discussed or covered. And um, reach out to me on email as well, tanya at nurtureinnature.com.au. So now it's time for you to switch off whatever device you're listening on and on to your kids and get outside for lots of fun, learning and memory making together. I'm your host, Tanya Maloney. This is Nurture in Nature Radio, and I look forward to seeing you and your family outside. Okay, everyone, thanks for listening to Nurture in Nature Radio. Now let's go play outside. I'll race you to the door. See you again next week.
little trees need a chance to grow It takes time and care, they're a lot like us, you know